Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Well, hello and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Kenneth Sullivan. Well, in this session, we'll study 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as usual, we will be studying from the New International Version. So let's jump right in and get started. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm reading verse 1. And you should follow my example just as I follow Christ. Paul is concluding his teaching on the subject of eating meat offered to idols. If you uh, were with us in the last session, we talked a lot about that. Um, so actually, this verse really fits better uh, with chapter 10 than at the beginning of chapter uh, 11. But the translators pushed it down into chapter 11 and and so there it is. Paul urged the Corinthian saints to observe his lifestyle. He says, actually, follow me as I follow Christ. Do what, what I do. And I'll, they uh, had not had the opportunity to see Christ physically, uh, uh, but they had heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Uh, but Paul was not timid in, in uh, challenging them to follow his example. And that's why it's so important for uh, those of us who are ministers of the gospel to, to live the kind of lives that we want our, our children, our, our, um, um, those who listen to us, our followers to be able to, uh, to imitate or emulate. Uh, it's the same way with parents, with our children. We don't want to live in such a way that we are a stumbling block for our children. So we're challenged as people of God, just as Christians, to live up to a certain kind of a standard um, as the people of God. We don't want to be a stumbling block in other people's way because of the way that we live. We don't, don't want to live ragged lives, okay? So by demonstrating such concern for the welfare of others, Paul, Paul was able to win many people to Christ because he won them by love, um, not by legalism, not by just a, a bunch of man-made rules. He he showed how much he cared. Now I'm reading verses two and three. I am so glad, dear friend, that you always keep me in your thoughts and you are, and you are following the Christian, Christian teaching I passed on to you. But there's one thing I want you to know. A man is responsible to Christ. A woman is responsible to her husband. And Christ is responsible to God. So, uh, Paul is commending them, of course, on following his teaching, and then he drops some more teaching on them. He he tells them how um, he gives them the hierarchy of of order uh, in the world. The fact that Paul took the time to address male and female relationships in the church it suggests that um, there were questions that needed to be answered regarding this. Uh, the Corinthians had evidently written to the apostle and. And raise these questions. So Paul's response was to explain that Christ is the head or chief over men, and men are in authority over their wives, and God is the authority or the head over Christ. That is 
the order, the hierarchy that uh, that God has established. A husband is the uh, uh, is, is the authority over his wife. The authority of the man is Christ. The authority over Christ is God. That's what Paul is telling us. Now, the fact that God declared the men to be the authority does not suggest that women are any are in any way inferior to the man. Uh, they're just different. Uh, it does not infer in any way that 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 Christ is inferior to God the Father. The Bible says that that uh, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself and became a man. Okay, so he was with God. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But it it merely speaks of the order of the relationship. And God has established an order in the relationship. Uh, God the Father, uh, God the Son, Lord Jesus Christ, and and then uh, God over man and man over, over woman as far as authority is concerned. So Paul's intent was not to emphasize rule or submission between a man and his wife to um, but to establish the structure and the rational order for worship. Now, uh, we have to be submitted to one another in, in, in the order that God established it. But in some of Paul's other teachings, he, he does he does emphasize this. Here he's, he's not emphasizing the submission part. He's, a, he's, a, he's emphasizing the authority part, the order of things. But in some of his other uh, teachings, he emphasized the importance of husbands loving their wives and wives submitting to their husbands. You can read that about that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 through 29, and Colossians chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, if you want to take the time to look at that. Christ is the head of every man by virtue of the fact that he is the creator and the giver and sustainer of life. Christ is also the head of every man in that uh, he is the redeemer uh, of every man who will ever be redeemed. He is the authority. Now I'm reading verses four through six. A man dishonors Christ if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her husband if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear... Uh, a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. And since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, then she should wear a covering. Now, women would pray and prophesy in public worship, but it was a custom of that day that a woman uh, should wear a covering on her head as a symbol of her, of, uh, her submission to her husband. Uh, if a woman was seen praying or prophesying in a public worship service with her head uncovered, it was a, a token or a, a sign of her disrespect and defiance of her husband's authority. Now, this is their, their ancient uh, custom that they they obeyed and everybody understood it well. Of course, today is different in our society and in our culture. There are some cultures where they still may cover their head. They may follow that, but uh, it, it's not a custom among us. But it was it was so entrenched, and, and people were so familiar with it that uh, 
Paul told them to continue that since this is a custom of the land, follow that custom. Uh, don't defy the authority of your husband by praying with your head uncovered. That's what he told the women. Uh, a woman who prayed with her head uncovered, her actions were seen to be uh, disgraceful, as if she had shaved off her hair. Um, uh, a woman who openly refused to cover her head might just as well cut off her hair or, 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 or demonstrate some other um, gross disrespect to authority. On the other hand, men were expected to keep their heads covered when they worshiped, when they were prophesying in the public assembly or, or when they were praying. Uh, they covered their head um, as a sign of, of their submission. Uh, 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 they kept their head uncovered uh, as a sign of their submission to Christ. For a man to cover his head was a uh, a, as much of a sign of a dishonor to Christ as an uncovered woman, uncovered woman was to her husband. Okay, so men prayed with their head uncovered, and someone may say, "Well, well why did they have that custom?" Well, it's just a custom. I don't, uh, I don't know where it came from, but it was a very familiar custom, and they followed it. Okay, so Paul is saying, um, stay in step with the cult that that custom to show your submission to authority. Instructions about covering and uncovering the head in worship were, they were cultural and, and they were binding in Paul's day because to do otherwise would be to send a, a wrong signal, would be to send a signal of rebellion, that the woman is rebelling against her husband, that the the man is rebelling against Christ if he prayed with his head covered um, in worship, in service. Now I'm reading verses 7 through 10. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for man is God's glory, made in God's own image. But woman is the glory of man. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. A man was not made for woman's benefit, but woman was made for man. So a man should wear a covering on, uh, so a woman should wear a covering on her head as a sign of authority because the angels are watching. Now, the woman's cover, again, symbolizes her submission to her husband. The fact that she is her husband's glory and that she is not seeking to rise above him, not seeking uh, to be the authority over him, but she gladly accepts her place of, uh, under his authority. On the other hand, man is the glory and image of the Lord. Now, his lack of covering allows him to fully express the image of God. For a man to cover his head in ancient Jewish culture was a sign of dishonor toward Christ. Now, this discourse about head coverings and submission should be, uh, uh, could be easily misrepresented to suggest inequality um, between men and women. Some people uh, some people might use that to say that, well, that means that the man is superior, the woman is inferior, uh, but that's not what Paul is teaching here. He's teaching submission to authority. He's teaching a, the order that God set things in. Paul made it clear in his letter to the church at Galatia, that um, the Galatian church, that we are all equal. We are all one or equal in Christ. As far as God is concerned, 
Paul said there's no, there's neither male nor female. Okay. And that's in Galatians chapter three, verse 28. Christianity actually had the effect of elevating women from an inferior second class status, which was imposed on them by many cultures and religions. And even today, um, they are, uh, women are forced into a place of inferiority by a lot of cultures and a lot of religions. They are not counted as uh, as equal to men, but Christianity actually raised the status of women. It sets an order, but it, it raises the status, and and God looks at us as equal. There's neither male nor female. Now, in verse 10, Paul mentioned the angels. Perhaps this statement suggests that uh, that the saints should be an example of submission and reverence to God in the presence of the angels, because Angels are assigned the task of watching over the people of God. We can't see them, but they're present. And they're in our worship services. Uh, they follow us around. Um, they watch over us. They protect us. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses four, verse 14 and 13 and 2 tells us that. They watch and behold how we conduct ourselves. So it is an offense to the watching angels for anyone to dishonor God in any way and in their custom then to for a man to cover up his head uh, in worship was a way of dishonoring God. And so Paul wants us to be aware of that fact. Now, in the 21st century, it is no longer customary to follow this custom in, in most churches, especially most Western churches. Um, in most Christian cultures today, the presence or the absence of a head covering doesn't convey any message at all about submission. So uh, since our culture uh, is not steeped in that, we don't know anything about it. Uh, we're not under that uh, that rule. But since th there was such a part of their, their culture, they had to live by it or they would send a signal, the wrong kind of signal. Okay. Now, coverings for the head are only practical. They're only practical for us. We put on a hat to to uh, to warm our head or just as a fashion statement today. Um, but then, of course, it was a custom. So whatever the custom of the time or ge geographical location, it, it if it serves to demonstrate submission to authority, we should honor that custom. If that if that custom demonstrates some submission to authority that is biblical, then we should honor that custom. We don't have that custom again today, so we're not under bondage to that. Now I'm reading verses 11 and 12. But in relationships among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men. Men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, all men have been born from women ever since. And everything comes from God. So Paul is telling us that we are... Um, we're dependent upon each other now. Uh, although the first woman came from a man, uh, Eve was taken from the side of Adam, okay? And and uh, Eve was made for Adam to be his help meet or help suitable to, to assist him in doing what he was doing to comfort him and help him through life. And, uh, and Adam was certainly to love his wife. Now, Paul is showing the quality by saying that, well, the first woman came from man, but ever since then, 
every man has come from a woman. So uh, he is establishing co-equality here by saying that although uh, the first woman came out of man, now we are dependent upon each other. This uh, expression of mutual dependence, that is, man is dependent upon woman, woman is dependent upon man. God made us needy creatures. Um, he started in the, in the book of Genesis with Adam. He made Adam with certain needs that were not fulfilled when he was created. And those needs were not fulfilled until God took Eve out of Adam's side and presented her to him. Then Adam was whole. Uh, Adam had needs that, that God specifically uh, and purpose, purposefully designed for him to have. And now it is the same way today. God made us needy. We need each other. Certainly we need God, but God made us to need each other. And in this case, um, he is showing that a man needs a woman, a woman needs a man. They come together. They are complete. Uh, so while the value of males was clearly established and without challenge in most cultures, the value of females, women, was diminished in most cultures a woman's value was less than that of a man, but Christ came along and he brought, he raised the woman up and he put up, put her by our side. And now he is showing us, and Paul is teaching this, that we need each other. The man needs a woman equally as much as the woman needs the man, man, and perhaps more so. Um, so we are co-equal, but we just have different, uh, uh, different functions and, and uh, different assignments. Women are often unappreciated and demeaned in most cultures, but Paul introduced God's perspective. In God's perspective, a woman is valued, uh, her value is revealed, and her, her equality is established or, or actually uh, uh, revealed and, and uh, unveiled to us because uh, again, there's been this misconception about the value of women. Christ is the champion of women. He is a champion of justice and equality. Uh, and so we see it here in Scripture. Now, verses 13 through 16, what do you think about this? Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't it obvious that long hair is a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, all I can say is that we have no other custom than this. And all the churches of God feel the same way. So Paul returns to the subject of covering and uncovering the head in worship. He uh, Here he specifically references long hair as a natural covering for women, but sees long hair as uh, disgraceful for men because it covers the man's head, okay? And in their cult culture, again, a man praying with his head covered, even with the long hair that a woman has, was a, a symbol of dishonoring God, okay? Now, again, we don't have that cult, that uh, custom, so things are different now. Paul is also emphasizing the fact that men and women are different and uh, distinct from each other and that this distinction should be preserved, Okay. Um, Paul is saying that women shouldn't go around looking like a man and men shouldn't go around looking like 
a woman. Now, if anybody has contention about that, then their contention is with God because he is the one who established it. God wanted to make women look distinctly feminine and he wants men to look distinctly masculine. Men should not look like women and women should not look like men. Um, to obscure these distinctions is to act against nature. This is what Paul is saying. Temple prostitutes are believed to have blurred this distinction by sometimes changing their appearance from male to female or from female to male. And you had homosexual um, temple prostitutes as well as heterosexual temple prostitutes. Uh, but God has de declared this all as sin, as wrong. And Paul is making it very clear that uh, God distinguishes between a man and a woman. Paul condemned this behavior in the church, urging men to be careful to maintain that distinction that is awarded by nature. In Corinth, it was unnatural or disgraceful for a man to have long hair like a woman, and it was unnatural for a woman uh, to cut her, to shave her head, and to uh, to cut her hair to look like a man. Paul wanted to steer the church away from practices that would identify them with shameful behavior. Now, Paul anticipated that uh, some of the saints in the church of Corinth might want to disagree or argue with him over these issues. And to those who were prone to disagree with him, he made it clear that, that he, he taught uh, what he taught was not out of step with the practices and values of the rest of the churches. So he was teaching, I'm not teaching anything that is out of the ordinary. Everybody believes this. Everybody knows this. Uh, and so if anybody challenges this, they're the ones who are out of step and not me. Now, Paul was in complete harmony with the rest of the churches and, and he had their support regarding this matter. Paul also uses the word custom to signify that rather than timeless and universal commandments, the issue of head covering had to do with culture and custom that was relevant to his time, okay? Well, things are different now, and especially in our culture here in the West. And, and uh, you may be seeing this, of course, in another country, uh, another a part of the hemisphere even. Um, but in, in this part of the country, uh, those customs have changed and so we're not as bound by that as, as they were then. Now, verses 17 through 22. Now, we are bound by what Paul said about uh, making a distinction between male and female. Okay, that is, I, I think that is a timeless command. God does not want men going around looking like women and women going around looking like men. And, and uh, this has nothing to do with pants, women wearing pants. It has to do with with the deliberate of act, deliberate act of of uh, a man presenting himself as a woman and a woman presenting herself as a man. Um, that Paul said is not natural. Now, verses seventeen through twenty two. But now, when I mention this next issue, I cannot ra I, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First of all, I hear that there are obvious uh, that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that those of you who are right will be recognized. 
It's not the Lord's Supper you are concerned about when you come together. I'm told that some of you hurry to eat, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Is this really true? Don't you have your own home for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace the church of God and shame the poor? What I'm, what am I supposed to say about these things? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly do not. Now, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus met with his disciples and had what is commonly referred to as the Last Supper. He broke a loaf of bread and passed it around and he told them and he gave them um, a cup of wine that they passed around. And he said that the bread was a symbol of his body that was broken for them and the blood was, the wine was a symbol of his blood that was going to be shed. Um, and uh, that became... Uh, a part of the, uh, the the sacraments of the church. This is something that we do. Uh, we take communion to show that we are one in Christ. Now, with sadness in his heart, Jesus informed them that that would be the last time that they they ate together until they uh, came together in the kingdom of God, until he returned. Um, and so we established this. When Christian, Jesus established this, sacrament. And when we take partake of it, it symbolizes our acceptance of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross. And it symbolizes the fact that we are joined with Christ, that we are one with him. When Paul had to issue a rebuke to the Corinthians because they were violating this oneness. They were, um, some were coming and they were bringing their meals and, and some were hurrying up and eating their food, and they weren't waiting for each other. They were in disunity. Um, some had plenty to eat, and others had uh, nothing to eat. And those who had something wouldn't share with those who, who didn't have. Uh, they just uh, ate their food, and those who didn't have anything hungrily looked on. So they were violating the sacrament. The rich ignored the needs of the poor, and they use the large supper as little more than a, a meal to satisfy their appetite. So Paul was rebuking them for this. And, and they were actually mischaracterizing the, the fellowship meals and the large supper for their, uh, by their selfishness. And so Paul, again, he rebuked them for this and he brought correction. Uh, rather than presenting the body of Christ as a loving, unified body of believers, they were uh, misrepresenting Christ and his body and, and the organization, uh, uh, or, uh, they were, they were, they were, uh, representing it as an organization of unloving, uncaring, divided people. And so they were, um, they were violating this. And because of this, some of them were suffering. I'm reading verses 23 to, through 26, but this is what the Lord himself said. And I pass it on to you just as I received it. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So to convey 
the sacredness of the communion ceremony, Paul made the saints aware that uh, it was a tradition which was established by the Lord Jesus Christ himself on the night that he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion. Paul also reminded them of how Jesus used that broken loaf of bread and, and the wine to symbolize how he would suffer and be broken and shed his blood, as, as, as I just stated. Uh, now, this was not, the communion was not a fellowship meal. And Paul wanted them to understand that this was serious business by framing the context for which the communion ceremony originated by, by giving them that bit of history on how it was established. Paul was attempting to sober their thinking by reminding them uh, of the awful price that was paid for their salvation. He also wanted them to reflect upon the, the death of the love of Christ who sacrificed so much for their place in the kingdom. Paul used Christ as a a model of sacrificial love and uh, unselfish devotion to those he loved as a means of, of, of bringing them to repentance for straying so far from the example that Jesus Christ has set. And without specifically saying it, Paul was implying that Christ sacrificed everything for them and they were not willing to share their food with each other. Now, in verse 26, Paul told them that every time they ate the Lord's Supper, they were announcing or demonstrating Christ's death in, in anticipation of his return. So it's the same for us today. When we take communion, we are proclaiming, we are announcing the death of Christ and, and uh, our expectation of his return. The way they had been representing this uh, sacred event, the, the Corinthians, had not been acceptable. And so Paul uh, was letting them know they needed a change of heart and they needed to change their conduct to reflect that change of heart. Now I'm reading verses 27 through 32. So if anyone eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, that person is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating, bre eating the bread and drinking from the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup unworthily, not, uh, not honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some may have died. But if we examine ourselves, we will not be examined by God and judged in this way. But when we are judged and disciplined by the Lord, we will not be condemned with the world. So the way that the saints were conducting and participating in the communion service was a sin against God. And Paul made it clear um, that uh, their sins had consequences, that mishandling this communion had consequences. Some of them were weak, were weak and sickly physically, and some of them had even died. And Paul was letting them know, this is, this is why you all are suffering like you are. Some of you are weak and some of you are sickly. Uh, some of you are dying because you're acting like this and you're violating, you're sinning against this uh, this uh, sacred uh, event here, this uh, sacred tradition that we've established, that Christ himself established. And so he was helping them to right themselves. He was warning them that God is not playing. This is serious business. When you come to take the communion, examine yourself, 
and make sure your attitude is right. Uh, uh, repent of your sins uh, and come come right. And, 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 and taking this communion, your heart you you want your heart right. You want your active actions right. You want your motives to be right. Now I'm reading verses 33 through 34. So dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home. So you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. So Paul warned the saints at Corinth that when they gather for the Lord's Supper, they should be careful to demonstrate common courtesy, decency, and consideration for each other. Paul wanted them to represent Christ, represent their position in Christ and, 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 and their place in Christ by the way they conduct themselves in, uh, in this communion. They should wait until the whole assembly is ready and participate in the communion in a unified manner. Paul reminded them that the communion ceremony was not intended to satisfy their physical appetite. Uh, he wanted them to eat your meals at home, he told them. Don't, don't come here hungry expecting to eat a big meal. Eat at home. This is a sacrament. This is something that we are doing to symbolize Christ and what he has done for us, our position in him, our expectation of his return. These instructions were simple yet practical. In view of the fact that the, that the Corinthians had not been exercising good judgment in the past, um, Paul wanted to make these things clear to them. He wanted to, to just be elementary in the way that he expressed them. Now, if they took reasonable precautions, then they would not have to worry about bringing judgment upon themselves. If they did this right, they wouldn't have to be afraid of it. Uh, they wouldn't have to be afraid of getting sick, coming weak and dying like Paul said was happening to them, uh, they could expect God's blessing if they did what was right. Now, Paul closed this chapter by alluding to other matters that the saints at Corinth may have inquired about or that uh, needed his attention. Uh, but apparently those things weren't uh, that as pressing as the ones that he took time to deal with here. And he doesn't give us the information on specifically what those things were. Well, that brings us to the close of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Next time, we will cover chapter 12. Friend, if you are ever in the Indianapolis area, I want to invite you to come visit us at uh, New Direction Church, where my son, Kenneth Sullivan Jr., is a pastor, and he's doing a great job leading the church. Um, we have two locations, two campuses now. Uh, our East Campus is located at 5330 East 38th Street, and our North Campus is located at 7701 East 86th Street. For service times, you can visit our website at ndcbetterlife.org. Until next time, God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com Please tune into our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast.